Before we get started, a quick note. This podcast features explicit language and may not be suitable for younger listeners. And if you're just joining us, this is a continuing story, and we recommend going back and listening to the first episode. classic history of arcades and you go back in time and you look at like okay for instance magazine ads they always show the arcade as this wholesome family environment those are the mall arcades the inner city arcades are completely different animal because you have so many different people coming in you have transients you have your local high school kids you have college kids you have the dirty old men that's Catherine Despira a journalist who has written extensively on retro gaming as well as debunking the plebeious urban legend in the pages of Retrocade magazine. It was some of the strange findings in her expose that first sent co-producer Todd Luoto and I down the rabbit hole that is Polybius. Kat has a unique perspective on the legend, given that she was a teenager in Portland in the early 1980s. Especially teenagers don't want to go to an arcade where there's not some element of danger. That's kind of why you're there, right? It's kind of the scene. It's the reason why you go to a nightclub or see, go see a punk band. If you're like 12 or 14 and you're in an arcade, okay, right? Probably the worst scenario that can make you the most uncomfortable is when some 40-year-old man comes in and, you know, tries to hit on you. And that, that was not something that just happened once in a while. It was something that you kind of had to look out for. So, yeah, there was definitely a vibe. <laughs> And it was that vibe, that element of danger, that gave rise to the tales that circulated on the arcade floor. And throughout 1981, one such tale proved louder than the rest. The 80s was when I, I, I first heard there was this game that, that hurt you. Nobody ever called it Polybius. The initial, original reports of the game was that it was in a black, unmarked box. Then it, by 1990-something, all of a sudden the name Polybius came up. Was there a connection between reports of this unnamed game and the stories of Polybius that later surfaced online? The accounts relayed by Cat and others, which predate the internet, suggest Polybius might have had its roots in arcade folklore of the era. Back in February of 1981, uh, my friend Tony Says came over to my house. I lived on 23rd and Hawthorne, which is situated right in between the Hawthorne Arcade District and Lloyd Center. He came over one day and said, hey, we, we, we got to go downtown. And I was like, why? He said, there's this great game downtown by the university, but it's kind of dangerous. And I go, what do you mean it's dangerous? And he says, some kid got hurt playing it. It, he drove, it drove him crazy. You know how kids are, they start telling stories and trying to, I don't know, they fabricate or exaggerate or whatever, but he was pretty serious about it. And about a week later, another friend of his came up to me and was talking about it and said that some kid got hurt down there playing a video game. It's worth noting that only a few months later, in the fall of 1981, Bobby, the Polybius tour guide we met in episode one, would allege to have been abducted by mysterious individuals after playing a similarly unnamed game at his local arcade. In Bobby's case, no such game was ever found. And when Kat went to investigate her friend's claims... Of course, we went down there and the game's not there. I don't think it ever existed. 
But then how do you explain someone saying that? There has to be some action that prompted him to think that that was true, right? It's easy to dismiss these fanciful tales of phantom arcade games. And while we may never know the truth, there were dark goings on in the arcades at the time. The arcades that Tony says had told me that the game was at, though he didn't call it Polybius, he said it didn't have a name. So that fits with the legend of the unmarked game, right? He said it was down at the Good Times Arcade by the University, downtown Portland, and that the other one that the, his friend said was at uh, Games Plus up on, uh, that would be 82nd Division. Now here's where the, it gets really creepy. Both those arcades were raided. Games Plus was closed down by the police. Good Times uh, by the University was supposedly raided for drugs, and I believe that. <laughs> Raids by federal agents such as these may have inspired the tales of men in black lurking in arcades that later appeared in the Plebeius legend. Arcade raids were not uncommon. They happened a lot. There were three reasons why they were raided. Uh, drugs was number one. Number two was a lot of them fenced stolen goods because they were run with no disrespect to people who were you know, prime operators, there was a lot of shady characters running them. And the other reason was there was prostitution, teenage prostitution. And it was always older guys coming in looking for younger girls, and some of the girls that were runaways would turn tricks in arcades, and that's a fact. Throughout this story, you're gonna be hearing a lot about one such runaway a boy named Mark Sims, and the tunnel he and Bobby were alleged to have escaped from during their abduction. It was the darker side of the arcade scene, the drugs and prostitution, that first drew Mark in. And while kids his age were busy immersing themselves in the fantasy worlds of their favorite arcade games, Mark was fulfilling the fantasies of some of the grown men who would frequent these arcades, looking to spend their money in a different manner. And in 1981, with the appearance of a certain unmarked cabinet, Mark found himself coming face to face with a new kind of predator, one of coils and cables and circuits. I'm John Frechette. This is The Polybius Conspiracy, a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. Okay, so all you guys stick out your hands. Each of you get four quarters a piece because you're all paying cuss. Please pick those up. Okay, so you're all paying customers. That's how this works. We're gonna go in there. All right, when you first walk in here, now the thing is these three games here. Here we are at the final stop of Bobby's Polybius walking tour, Coin Kingdom, back in the spring of 2015. Coin Kingdom's days as an arcade were long gone at this point, and it was now a laundromat under new management. Bobby was jumpy that day for a number of reasons. The staff had become suspicious of his increasingly erratic appearances. And only weeks before, he and his tour group had been kicked out by one of the owners. But the main reason Bobby was anxious was because there was a special guest joining us. A guest who offered something that Bobby desperately needed. Validation. You hear about parents who've lost a child, kids gone missing, weeks pass, years. The guest joining us on Bobby's tour has asked that we call him Ruben, although that's not his real name. You know, maybe the parents talk about, if we don't find the body, then at least there's a chance that, you know, maybe she's out there somewhere. But I think for those parents, it seems like ultimately they'd rather just know for certain. You know, like the certainty maybe is, is easier to live with than the not knowing. I guess that's how I felt. I, I, 
I wanted to know. In the months prior to our meeting, Ruben had been grappling with personal tragedy. His partner of six years, Mark Sims, worked as a consultant to a number of rehabilitation centers nationwide. Mark often traveled for work and was preparing for a trip to Portland for business, although that also happens to be where he grew up. That morning he left, it was a Thursday morning, and I kissed him goodbye and told him I would see him on Monday. It was only after he didn't return as scheduled that Ruben noticed Mark had taken several thousand dollars from a joint savings account they shared, canceled his cell phone and credit cards, and simply vanished without a trace, leaving behind no note or parting word to offer any closure. I called his work, of course, and they didn't know anything about uh, a job in Portland. So that, at least, there's some confirmation that, that he was not telling the truth. I called upon his family, his parents, who um, had not seen him, had not talked with him in years, and uh, certainly didn't want to talk to me. It was maybe two weeks later that I received a box in the mail from Mark's sister. In the box, there was a newspaper clipping. Uh, it was an article, like local color puff piece, called uh, The New Knights of Entertainment. Knights with a, a K, like medieval knights. And there was a picture of young Mark. He must have been 15 years old. He'd played in a tournament at the local video arcade. Coin Kingdom. Mark had never been one to share much about his adolescence, and this article seemed to offer insight into a part of him that Reuben had never known. It was a portal, and even if it didn't lead him to Mark, it might at least illuminate the boy he had once been. That picture in the newspaper clipping, I realized it was, it was the youngest picture I'd ever seen of Mark. I wanted to do the things that that 15-year-old boy had done, go to the places where he had been, even if even if that arcade weren't there any longer, you know, even if it was just a, a laundromat. And as Ruben continued his research, he stumbled across another piece of the puzzle. Yeah, that was the first time that I saw Bobby's story online. Reading Bobby's account of his abduction, it sounded pretty bogus. Look, there are all kinds of like crazy urban legends. I'm sure that there's a grain of truth to a lot of them, and some of them are total bullshit. At the same time, there's not much I would put past our government. You know, I mean, we've all heard about MKUltra. You know, the, the idea that some sort of secret government agency would maybe be conducting experiments on unwitting kids playing video games in arcades, far-fetched, but uh, impossible. So armed with a faded newspaper from 1981, Ruben traveled back to Portland to see if he could find out what happened to Mark. And one of his first stops happened to be Bobby's walking tour. I brought a picture of, of Mark and the newspaper clipping. I approached Bobby after his tour, after he wrapped up. And I asked if he recognized this, this man. I showed him Mark's picture and uh, he recognized him right away. He said he'd been on the, the tour. He, he hadn't said anything. He hung back. And then I showed him the younger picture of Mark. It was an old photograph of a bunch of kids in an arcade, and I realized it was Coin Kingdom. And one of the faces in there, my finger just went right to it. That was, that was the boy who rescued me. 
All the color went out of Bobby's face. You hear people say that, all the color went out of someone's face, but it really did. It wasn't something you could fake. He, he recognized Mark. Finally, after 34 years of wondering, someone had come forth with the identity of Bobby's savior. Bobby was on the phone to us right away with Ruben's contact info. We set up an interview with him, portions of which you've just heard, and scheduled a tour of Coin Kingdom with he and Bobby. Fortunately, there was someone new working there the day we visited, someone who didn't mind us taking a look around. I just wondering, do you guys, do you guys know the significance of this place? Huh? Oh, I was just telling these guys, like, do you know how this place used to be an arcade? Yeah, that was, woo. Basically, it was, I believe it was three owners that owned this same laundry, but yeah, before that, it was an arcade, though. And do you know about the tunnels underneath all here? Well, I'm not even playing with you, but I heard yeah. there's a couple still, just a couple tunnels out there that just haven't been fully just covered. No, that, that, that's how it is, man. It's totally weird. Now, you used to be able to get to one through the back of here, but yeah, they, 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 I, they changed yeah. all that stuff. I seen you could just go like a quarter in there, but it was just blocked off. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks. All right. Into the Shanghai tunnels we go, guys. Now on to all this talk of tunnels. What Bobby refers to on his tour and in the story of his abduction happens to coincide with another of Portland's better-known urban legends, the Shanghai Tunnels, allegedly a century-old interconnected network of passageways beneath the streets of Portland. Safe? Yeah, 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 these are safe. It's just, it's like the tunnels, you know, it's just like old hardy shit that uh, somebody built for who knows what awful reasons. As we descended beneath the laundromat and our surroundings changed, so did our host. He became anxious, as if he were worried we were going to get caught by the owners. Or maybe it was the past catching up to him. The, 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 the myth and the lore around these, these tunnels that we're in, it's, it's just like Polybius, where it's like designed to like move secrets and even move human cargo. And you can keep a whole operation going. That's how Polybius like easily could have popped up in, in uh, you know, different parts of the city, different neighboring cities. I mean, like this is, you, you can see the width of this tunnel, the dampness, the coolness, even the way the walls feel, the texture. The hairs go up on the back of my neck every time. This is the part of the tour that for me is the most intense. It's visceral every time. I don't like being down here that long, especially like I can't be down here Just alone. The damp, I've, the chill. I've, I've done it. The longer we were down there, the more uncomfortable we became. Aside from the lights on our phones, it was pitch black. There was no way of knowing just how far the tunnel extended or how deep we were going to venture into it. And then, without warning, we came upon a dead end. And uh, there's no getting through it and clearly could have been sealed up by all the people after the plebeius game. They wanted to like close up all their loose ends. Well, city that, blocks that, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you look at that and that's clearly construction and everyone's just gonna think like that's just normal like, thing that's part of the city and for safety, let's seal these things up and it seems to make sense. So if you take Bobby's word, these Shanghai tunnels were supposedly reappropriated by whatever mysterious organization or entity was in charge of the Polybius program. And after it ended, they sealed them up to cover their tracks. The only problem with his story is, the tunnels never existed in the first place. And the way we found this out was by taking another walking tour. My name is Doug Kent Crispin. I'm the resident historian for ORHistory.com. 
We met with Doug on the banks of the Willamette River, which flows through the city and connects the port of Portland with the Pacific Ocean, 100 miles up the coast. And it's this river and its history as a hub for shipping, which was instrumental to the formation of the legend of the Shanghai Tunnels, a legend that could have easily influenced Bobby's teenage tale of abduction and escape. Here's Doug with the real history of the tunnels. So the fable of the Shanghai Tunnels is that these men would be in a bar and somebody would give them a Mickey essentially from the 1880s and be out cold, drag them down into tunnels where they keep them in these shitty little jail cells and basements and buildings and they'd hold them in there for weeks, you know, in bondage, literally like a chain around their ankle until they could find an appropriate ship to send them onto where the men wouldn't get any pay and it was a pretty sucky life. The term Shanghai comes from the fact that Shanghai was the shittiest port of call to go to because it was so far away. Like, you're going to be stuck on that boat for a long time. The unusual thing about the Shanghai Tunnels is that, like Bobby, most of the people we spoke to believed, without question, that they were real. As with Polybius, it's interesting to consider how something with such a dubious origin can be so widely accepted. So there's a lot of tour companies that have been perpetuating this myth of Shanghai Tunnels in Portland. And, you know, a lot of shows are on the Travel Channel and lots of the other cable programs, you know, and kind of the 11 p.m. hour. I think that the folks in the area and tourists that come to town have absolutely been fed this kind of Shanghai Tunnel fallacy. So, you know, this fable is what's really been presented to the public. And I think generally they kind of accept that that's reality. I get a lot of kind of long, broken heart faces on my tour when I bring the truth. But like so many urban legends, the Shanghai tunnels didn't just emerge out of thin air. The stories of sailors being Shanghai'd were rooted in actual events. The reality is that there is an institutionalized system that the harbor master, the police, the ship captains, everybody else was in on. So there's really no need for these kind of clandestine, uh, underneath the basement behaviors to be going on in the middle of the night. The myth was started in 1970 when a gentleman uh, was starting a tour company in Old Town, Portland. And there was this myth that he found these tunnels under this building. And there was a newspaper article about it at the time talking about how he was gonna start giving tours, taking people through these tunnels that he had discovered. If I'm Bobby, growing up just outside of Portland in the 1970s, this myth might have been something I mistook for fact. It's a myth that extended beyond the city of Portland a hundred miles up the coast to Astoria, Oregon, which shares the same legend, that beneath the city once existed a network of tunnels used to traffic sailors out to port. There's even a play, Shanghai in Astoria, which began its run back in 1984. Again, Bobby could have been influenced by some or all of this. It's also possible that he first encountered the idea of the tunnels in a popular film that used Astoria, Oregon as its setting. The Goonies tells the story of a group of teenage misfits who discover a network of tunnels beneath Astoria, Oregon. Wait, listen to that. What? It's deep. Like there's a hole or a passageway. It's real deep. It's the start of the tunnel. Bobby would have been a senior in high school when the movie was released in 1985. And this wasn't the only film that bore a resemblance to some aspect of Bobby's story. The year before saw the release of The Last Starfighter, a film in which a young man's favorite arcade game turns out to be a secret recruitment test for pilots waging an intergalactic battle. All that hand-eye coordination really paid off. The year before saw the release of 1983's Nightmares, 
a horror anthology about urban legends that featured the segment The Bishop of Battle, starring Emilio Estevez as a video game addicted hustler who reaches the fabled 13th level of a sinister arcade game, only to be imprisoned inside it. Curiously, in the film, the owner of the arcade is named Willie, as in Willie King, who supposedly owned and operated the arcade Bobby frequented as a teenager, Coin Kingdom. A coincidence? We've heard from several sources that people were already talking about a mysterious unmarked game as early as 1981, so maybe these films were just part of the zeitgeist. But it bears consideration that these tales, including Bobby's, ultimately inspire Polybius, which could be an online hoax. Or is Bobby trying to capitalize on an existing myth by putting his own spin on it? Regardless of the answer, on the day we took Bobby's walking tour, in the basement of Coin Kingdom, this was not pop culture ephemera. For Bobby and Ruben, this was fact. Man, there's always, there's always, you know, a formal history that a lot of people are aware of and carry on and write about. Then there's always this darker history that's always in secret and only the people that function in those circles know about it. And this is one of those things, you know. I think that's why they picked Portland was because of this inner working system. Most people don't know about it. Most people don't talk about it. You know, what's crazy is how extensive it is. The tunnel that Mark and I came out of, you know, deep in the woods, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, what if these tunnels were actually originally built to abduct people? You know, why not, why not avail yourself of them for the same purpose, you know, if you were wanting to kidnap people? As Bobby continued to talk about the tunnels, the game, and the various theories that tied these two distinct Portland myths together, one couldn't help but notice that Ruben seemed instantly sold on the details. For Bobby, you can imagine this was a welcome sight. But for us, it was all very confusing. Why didn't Ruben challenge how far-fetched it all seemed? To understand that, you need to hear Ruben tell his story. The whole story. You spend your whole life as an addict knowing that you're somehow to blame for everything. You are the author of all the shit around you. And the time that I was with Mark was a reprieve from all that. And to have that kind of thinking lifted, you, you get a chance to be a different person for a little while, someone who isn't always to blame. Ruben had been using drugs for over a decade when he bottomed out and decided it was time for a new beginning. It was at his first meeting that he met Mark, who soon became his sponsor. Obviously, when, when you're going through recovery, the last thing that they encourage you to do is, is become romantically involved with anyone else, but certainly not with somebody at your meeting. Of course, it happens all the time, and it happened between us. Mark had successfully battled his own demons, which stemmed all the way back to his years as a teenager living in Portland. Now, Mark was a huge fuck-up, too. Before I knew him, he saw himself very clearly and was not afraid to share um, what he'd been through. I mean, he, God, Mark turned tricks, you know, Mark was in it to win it. He used to hustle at local arcades to earn money for drugs, but that was the only time he mentioned arcades. He didn't even play video games, and he certainly never discussed abductions, secret tunnels, or anything remotely resembling Polybius. For nearly six years, Mark and Ruben were happy, but Mark's dedication to his work ultimately came at a price. Mark had 
a need not to not to be thought of as a good person. Mark had a need to help people. Like it was like a fucking pathology. He was a professional savior. And I guess at some point I got jealous of everyone else who needed his help. Mark had other disasters to deal with. But I don't think that goes away, that, that desire for attention, to be seen. And if I wasn't getting it from Mark, then, you know, like an addict, you, you look for it wherever you can find it. As Mark was traveling a lot, um, it got lonely. And when he was in town, I had to share him. At some point, I'm not even sure what trip it was he was on, I went to a meeting, primarily because I was lonely. I don't think that I knew that I would be taking someone home that night. And I, you know, I mean, I, emotionally, I don't even know how much of a betrayal it, it was. I, I, in my heart, I never stopped loving him, but it got easier and easier. He eventually came back home um, while someone was leaving, and he reacted exactly like you would expect Mark to, calmly, rationally. I know that it hurt him, though. But Mark didn't leave. It was around that time that Ruben started to notice a shift in Mark's behavior. He became increasingly secretive. At night, Ruben would awaken to find the bed empty beside him. Mark would be in the office, at the computer, bathed in the glow of the monitor. He'd tell Ruben that he couldn't sleep and wanted to use the time productively to answer emails. But Ruben suspected he wasn't telling the whole truth. When he checked the browser's history, it would be empty. The trip right before Portland, I think it was Atlanta, he came back and uh, you know, maybe I was doing some snooping, but I found a uh, glassine bag in his jeans pocket, in his change pocket, just some residue inside. And you know, it, it could have easily come from someone else, but I had to wonder, did he fly with that bag in his pocket? So you would think, right, that, that I would have said something to him. But I didn't. I never asked him about it. I thought about leaving it out on the nightstand, but I um, took it back before he got home, and I flushed it down the toilet. Why didn't I ask him about the drugs? Maybe because I thought I had pushed him toward it. Maybe this was my fault, and I just didn't want to know. When Reuben tells his story, the whole story. It's easy to understand why he might gravitate to Bobby. Maybe there's some comfort in imagining that Mark is embroiled in a mystery instead of the alternative, which is that he left Reuben, or worse, relapsed. Maybe Bobby sensed this and preyed upon Reuben, making him a pawn in his game. Maybe the photo he saw wasn't of the boy, but a boy, one that he could use to validate his story nonetheless. But to hear Reuben tell it, Bobby was the real deal. You know, we'd both been saved by Mark after all, right? Maybe he was the first. How would he know that about Mark? How would he just have happened to chance upon the defining characteristic of a person, you know? If he'd never met him. I know, just in that brief moment that they'd come into contact, he'd seen that thing that defined Mark, that I loved best about him. I believe Bobby. Um, I believe Bobby. And maybe whether we did or we didn't, 
ultimately doesn't matter. In a world of alternative facts and fake news, maybe whatever Reuben chose to believe was his reality. And maybe he had another reason to believe Bobby's story. There was one night uh, we'd been talking in bed, you know, the same conversation over and over. I mean, I essentially me telling Mark why I did what I did, why he shouldn't forgive me, but he had to. Eventually, we both fell asleep. To the best of Ruben's memory, this was about two weeks before Mark disappeared. And I don't know what woke me up, but I woke up and I realized Mark was not in bed with me. I didn't really think anything of it. I probably fell back asleep, only to wake up again, and I thought I heard something out in the kitchen, so I got up out of bed. I wasn't scared. I knew it was him. I didn't think anyone else was in the house. But then I saw the window was open, and I saw legs standing out on the ledge. I touched his leg. I didn't want to startle him uh, and have him fall. I told him to come back inside, and he didn't respond. I could see from a little bit of light that, that he just was staring off. His eyes, they were open, but it was like he was asleep. He talked about sleepwalking before. He said it wasn't something that he had done since he was a teenager. I think I had heard somewhere that you weren't supposed to startle a sleepwalker. That, um, I don't know, it would give them a heart attack or they'd freak out or something. I, I tried to gently guide him back inside that's when I heard that he was saying something, just over and over the same thing. They're coming. And his eyes staring off like he was seeing someone pass me, someone that I couldn't see. I asked him who, who, who was coming? They're coming. The Polybius Conspiracy is a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. The series is produced by Todd Luoto and myself, and executive produced by Julie Shapiro. Original artwork for each episode is by Jin Lim. Music for this episode was composed by Restricted, Rishikesh Hirway, and Ananon. You can learn more about all of them and see bios for everyone we interview by visiting radiotopia.fm showcase. I'm John Frechette. The mystery of Polybius continues next week.